Well, good morning, church. It's great to be here. Our message this morning is a continuation in our series on Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through to 18. It's sort of the end of a unit that Paul has been um, going through since back in, in verse 27 of chapter 1. So as I read through it, and as you read through it as well, you'll notice some themes and some language that are familiar to us. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labour in vain even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Over the past few weeks, I, along with no doubt many of you, have had my attention drawn upward to the sky and specifically to the moon. Of course, the occasion has been the 50th anniversary of mankind's first steps on the desolate lunar surface. And my TV guide has suddenly been filled with programs that are investigating the different elements about it, going through what was the last hour before they landed on the moon, all sorts of things. And there was one particular program that captured my attention for, for a couple of nights as they were given a lot of background to what happened for that whole decade of the 60s. And one thing that I noticed, there was a lot of conversation being had about who would be the first man on the moon, but also what would he say? Because conversation, they're throwing up about stuff about cheese. Maybe Duncan, uh, Neil, Duncan Armstrong. Maybe Neil Armstrong will be making a comment about cheese because he's got an endorsement or something like that. It was the conversation around the water cooler, you might say. What's going to be the appropriate response as the first man steps foot on the moon. And our passage today in Philippians 2, 12 to 18 also talks about the right response, the appropriate response. The right response of the believers in Philippi as they live with each other in the church and as they live with the world around them. So they're living with other people in the church who they don't always see eye to eye with. And they're obviously living in a world that does not declare Jesus as Lord and Saviour. 
And as we look at this this morning, it will lead us to consider the question, why should we as Christians live a life of obedience? As we go through, we'll notice that Paul gives the Philippian believers three directions. In verse 12, he tells them to work out their salvation. Verse 14, they're to do all things without grumbling or disputing. And unsurprisingly for Paul, in verse 18, they are to rejoice with him. And it'd be tempting for us to just jot down these three things on a to-do list. But I fear if we were to do that, much like humanity's quest to walk on the moon, such a list would only lead us to the desolate surface of planet Pius or something like that. A place where there is hard labour, a place known for ever-increasing burdens, of unreachable expectations and guilt-ridden feelings. And this is not where we, nor the Philippian church, are supposed to end up as a result of these verses. Paul's purpose is not to create followers of Jesus who have their socks pulled up, sleeves rolled up, and strength used up, in the hope that one day they will be caught up and their account will be found to be filled up. Paul's response, sorry, his purpose in verses 12 to 13 is to encourage the Christian community to respond to each other and their world in lived obedience. He says that is the right response. But a right response to each other in the world comes from a right response to Jesus. Are you able to drive that at all, Maddie? Or thanks, man. Let's read um, verses twelve to thirteen again. Paul says, "Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you." both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So these verses contain principles that can be applied universally to Christians. And as I said earlier, verse 12 contains the first of three directions that Paul gives to the Philippian Christians. He says to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But what does it mean to work out your own salvation? The temptation and danger for us is doing what I have just forced you to do. I wonder if you noticed it. I wonder if you noticed how, like a bloke setting up the TV or stereo system where it went straight to the action, didn't even check the manual. Look at all the important stuff that we skipped over. 
Therefore, as you have, so now. If we're to understand what Paul means when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, we need to deal with the phrase right at the start, right at their foundation of our verses. Paul begins with the word therefore, and by doing this, he is reminding his audience of what he said back in chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, where he speaks of Jesus' lived obedience. Starting at verse 5, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You notice the word obey there. And Paul uses it to describe to the Philippian believers. He uses it to describe the Philippians, a believer's obedience in verse 12. But he's used the same word to speak of Jesus' life of obedience in verse 8. Verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2 tell us that Jesus' obedience was the result of his right attitude and right action. His right attitude is seen in verse 6. It says, though Jesus was in the form of God did not count, or you might have, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is a right attitude to have towards God. And this attitude gives birth to Jesus' actions of emptying himself of his reputation and status as God and humbling himself to the form of of a servant that we see in verses 7 and 8. See, Jesus' life lived with right attitude and actions is what is described as obedience. I think it's pretty safe to say that's not naturally true of humans. See, embedded in verses 6 to 8 we see hints of a contrast being made between Jesus and Adam. With these verses in mind, let's look at Genesis 3, verses 5 to 6. And notice the attitudes and actions of the first humans. For God knows that when you eat of it, that is the the fruit of the tree, your eyes will be opened And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, 
and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took off its fruit and ate, and she also gave some, of her, some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Do you see the attitudes of Adam and Eve? It was to be wise. It was to be like God, wise in the ways of wisdom, wise in the ways of good and evil. And this leads to the actions of taking and eating of the fruit that God had forbidden. This leads to the actions of disobedience. And like the, the perfect humans, left to ourselves, humans will not be obedient. We can only disobey. But where humans grasp for equality with God, Jesus lets it go. Jesus' life of obedience is actually the model for how we become Christians, how we are saved. A Christian is someone whose attitude before God is not one of equality, but of disparity. They have recognised that God alone is worthy of glory and to be called Lord. So, emptying themselves of status or reputation, they come humbly before Jesus Christ and say, I was wrong, forgive me. That is, that is obedience. Right actions birth from a right attitude. This obedience is a living thing. It's only possible through the work of God because of Jesus. And with that as our understanding of obedience, we're now in a place to understand what, God, what Paul means, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And as we do this, I want to point out what these words are not saying. They do not say, work for your salvation, as though by doing the right things we can save ourselves. Neither does Paul say, figure out your salvation, as if intellectual understanding is all that's necessary without any need for action. Nor does Paul say, sit out your salvation, where you respond to Jesus with a prayer, only to sit on the sideline with a view to cash in your salvation like a get-out-of-hell free card when you die. See, in directing the Philippian believers to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, Paul is actually calling them to flesh out what, a, what living a life of obedience looks like for them. It's not actually a statement about how a person is saved, but it's looking at how saved people live out their salvation. Marriage is a great example of this. In a marriage, a husband and wife must work out what it looks like to be married. And believe it or not, this is not done by 
sitting down together and just writing out a list of what the ideal marriage might look like. To work it out means to live it out. Neither does Paul allow the believers to sweat out their salvation. Christians don't experience God's grace only to be required to work in order to maintain it. That would be like saying, thanks for getting me right, Jesus, but I've got it from here. I mean, that would be crazy, wouldn't it? In verse 13, Paul says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's actually God's work that enables the believer to have the right attitude and the right actions. You might remember back Philippians 1 verse 6. Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God's work not only gets us right, but keeps us right before him. His Holy Spirit enables living obedience to Jesus. And if these principles are to be applied to Christians universally, I guess a question it raises for us would be, would we describe our lives as living obedience to Jesus? Or are you working for, figuring out, sitting out or maybe sweating out your salvation. Christian's life is to be one of living obedience. And Paul now, as we move to verse 14, he fleshes out what it will look like in the context of the Philippian believers. It says the believer's right response to others is also living obedience. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain. Or labour in vain. Paul now goes from universal principles to Philippian specific principles. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And this seems to be addressing the disunity that has been popping up in the Philippian church. But Paul does this by highlighting both their connection and the contrast with the wilderness-wandering Israelites who were regularly chastised for their grumbling. Moses said of the Israelites, they are corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. That's a comment made of God's people. Paul contrasts that and says, no, you Philippians, you are God's children 
in a warped and crooked generation. And by doing this, Paul is giving the Philippians a subtle warning against their bickering. He does this by reminding them of the failure of Israel to, to live in obedience to God in the Old Testament. And the consequences that that brought on Israel and the consequences that brought on their mission to be messengers and beacons to the world. Look at some of the words in Daniel chapter 12. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Paul says, the Philippians shine as lights in the world. They do this by holding fast to the word of life. I think the easiest way to understand what he's talking about there is to listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 8. Jesus, when he spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And you might remember in Matthew chapter 5, you being his disciples, are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do believers shine as lights in the world by holding to and holding out to others the truth of Jesus? And we can be reminded of this every day as we look to the stars in our own sky. Stars are more obvious at night than in the day. And this is because of their contrast between them and the surroundings around them, from our point of view. This was the experience of the believers in Philippi. In Philippi. They were both obvious but also vulnerable because they followed Jesus. So if they were to be God's messengers and beacons, the Philippian believers needed to hold to, but also hold out to their society, the truth of Jesus. They needed to be living obedience. And this was to happen in their relationships with each other as a church, but also their relationships with those around them in the world. I want you to think back a few decades, if you can. I mean, <laughs> some of you, no, it's not possible. Others can go a lot, lot further than a few decades back. Some of us struggle to get to, back to yesterday or last week or something like that. But if you can, just imagine with me, go back a few decades. Would you say that followers of Jesus stood out in society? See, when society's laws 
and principles were founded on Christian principles, it's sort of like looking for stars in the daytime, isn't it? You know that they're there, but it's harder to see them. They don't really stand out. And as, but as society moves away from its Christian principles, those who live out their salvation, holding to and holding out the truth of Jesus to others, will actually start to stand out from the world around them, much like the stars do in the night sky. But even in the night sky, there can be barriers that obstruct our view of the stars. You can get clouds. The clouds these days might actually be church communities where Christians can retreat behind the walls of their sanctuaries and their homes and hide away from the world's view. And that is something that we need to work really hard at avoiding. Christians aren't to be people who try to ignite the fire in church on a Sunday or at Bible study during the week or at youth group, something like that. The Christian life isn't it's not like a campfire that you can just put a neat little border around just for containment purposes. It's not something you can just put out for safety reasons only to spark it up again when you need it. It's not like you can just go through the right procedure or have the right conditions and guarantee that the fire is going to light. God initiates and sustains the light of a star. He initiates and sustains the fire in the heart of a Christian. We can't spark it by saying the right words or being in a place where the the music and atmosphere is just right for it to kick in. As believers today, we need to allow ourselves to be obvious and vulnerable to each other and the world around us. I wonder, is that something that you find hard to do? Do you find it hard to be obvious? Do you find it hard to be vulnerable? I have. And I I still do. I know it can be hard for the high schooler or the university student to be obvious and vulnerable about their faith in Jesus. To be living obedience in a place where to stand out can mean being singled out. And you don't want to be singled out in that society, do you? Or for the employee that to be living obedience in a place where your ability to pay rent or to feed your family might be in jeopardy. Because you know if you get involved in a discussion that will reveal your disagreement with your employer on a moral or an ethical issue. 
and that could cost you. We all know that we should do these things, but how do we do it? How do we live obedience in our world tomorrow, Monday the 29th, next week, next month? Well, I actually want to answer that how with a why. Because living obedience brings joy to gospel partnerships. Verses 17 and 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul likens living obedience to a drink offering and a sacrificial offering. I mean, there's, there's no two ways about it. Offerings in the Old Testament were costly things. And there's no reason that our living obedience should be any different. But verses 17 and 18 should be encouraging for us because of the why. The first why is because of who we are offering this to. A believer's living obedience is an offering made to God, not people. Romans 12 verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Our offerings of living obedience are pleasing to God. He accepts them and works through them to bring glory to Jesus. The first reason why we should have lives living obedience is because they are offerings to God. The second encouraging reason for why we should be living obedience is because of who the offering is made with. See, knowing that his offering of living obedience was being made with the Philippians, with whom Paul shared gospel partnership, led him to rejoice. And he said they should do the same. And I think I can see the joy in that. I think I can see the reason behind, the reason why such offerings with each other would bring joy. Because as I see my brothers and sisters in Christ working out their salvation, holding on to the word of life and, and holding it out to those they live around, That will cause me to celebrate. And I will be encouraged to do the same. And we're to have those sort of relationships in our church. And I think to an extent we actually do. I've seen and I've heard obedience of that, uh, examples of that happening. Christians who are growing and maturing in their faith together 
sharing their struggles in living obedience, working out what the obedient life looks like in Brisbane and Marumba Downs today. What it looks like for a student, a doctor or an engineer. What it looks like for a retail worker, a teacher, a parent. What it looks like to the world. I mean, if you want to know what a star is like, you study the stars. If people want to know what Christ is like, they need to be able to study Christians. Christians can't hide behind clouds. They need to be willing to have their lives living obedience with the world around them. And as we help each other with this, with, as we help each other with how to be living obedience at school, at work, at home and in church, we can all share the joy of shining as messengers and beacons in the world around us. Can you commit to that this morning, friends? Can you commit to a life of living obedience? A life of living obedience here with each other. And a life of living obedience wherever God has placed you in this world. We have an opportunity to do that now. And if you're helping serve communion, I'd like to invite you to come forward, please. We have an opportunity to, to commit our lives in living obedience to Christ as we remember his sacrifice for us. At the communion table, we again examine our attitudes before God. And again, emptying ourselves of all reputation and status, we say to our Lord Jesus, I got it wrong. Forgive me. If this is not something you have done, or if this is something you are not willing to do yet, Well, I urge you, I encourage you, why not take this opportunity now? Are you willing to empty yourself? To have the Spirit of Christ change your attitudes and give birth to right actions in your life? Now's a great time to do that. If you haven't done it before, why not do that now? Just say it in your own heart. What I was wrong. I'm sorry, please forgive me. If it's not something you're, if it's something you're not willing to do yet, I encourage you to consider Jesus. 
the one who is Lord of all. Consider his attitudes and his actions for your benefit. Consider Jesus, who on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the Lord's table. This is not our table. If you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, please join us in this. You are going to be served a little piece of bread and a cup of juice. Take both of them. If you need something gluten-free, there's little cups of bread, little individual ones in the middle. Grab that. I invite you to eat the bread in your own time. As again, you consider your attitudes before our Lord. But hold the cup. We're going to drink that together as a sign of our unity as a community in Christ.
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us drink together. Our loving Lord Jesus, we thank you for your life of living obedience. We thank you that through your work on the cross, we can have your spirit in us, changing us and enabling us to live lives of living obedience. Heavenly Father, you know that we still mess up. You know that it's not our nature to obey. We ask once again that you would forgive us. Continue to change us, we pray, to look more like your Son. For in his name we pray. Amen. As we sing our next song, the cups will be collected. I just invite you to pass it to the aisles and they'll be taken. Thank you. Oh, 